us that word and who continues to work in our hearts, uh, causing us to respond to you. And we pray that he'll be working um, in the hearts of each of us today as we come to consider this passage together. We pray that you will strengthen me and enable me to preach it uh, truthfully and clearly and faithfully and in the power of the Spirit. And we pray that that same Spirit would work in each of our hearts, that we would respond rightly uh, to the Lord Jesus who is revealed in this word. Uh, and so we commit this time to you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Before you apply for a job, you want to know a little bit about the company that you're going to work for, don't you? Uh, you want to know what the company is, who is behind it, who it is that you're going to be working for. You want to know what the company does, uh, the company's mission, the company's business, what, what the company's on about. You want to know what the company expects of you, they, what they want to see you do, uh, the kind of commitment that you're going to make if you're going to join that company. And you'll need to look at all those things together with the remuneration package they're offering, as well as comparing this with the other options that you have out there so that you can decide whether or not to take this job. It's a little bit like that when you're thinking about becoming a follower of Jesus. You need to know who he is, his identity. You need to know his mission, his agenda, what he came to do. And once you find that out, you still need to work out, well, what does he expect of you? And then finally, when you've worked out what he expects of you, you need to decide whether it's worth giving to him or not. You need to do your cost-benefit analysis and see if you're going to follow him. So who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What, do you ex what does he expect of us? And is it worth giving it to him? Those are in fact the questions that our passage answers today. Uh, they're there on the outline, and we're going to be working through that. Uh, so if you're someone who is here today, and you're thinking about following Jesus, then, well, then this sermon is especially good for you. But most of us here are already followers of Jesus, and if you're already following Jesus, well, you really need to listen today as well, because the question I want us to be asking is this. Have I been following Jesus on my terms, or his? Because if I've been following Jesus on my terms, then I'm just kidding myself that I'm following Jesus, aren't I? You can only follow Jesus on his terms, not yours. That's why it's called following Jesus, not leading Jesus. So as we think about who Jesus is, what he came to do, what it means to follow him, we must be asking that question. Are we followers of Jesus? Are we following him? Or am I pretending to follow him and really I'm actually following my own agenda? The passage we're looking at today is a pivotal passage in Mark's Gospel. Uh, in the first half of Mark's Gospel, uh, really it looks at the question of who Jesus is. And the Holy Spirit through Mark not only tells us, but he shows us the identity of Jesus as we encounter him there. And in the second half of Mark, it shows what he came to do and what it means to follow him. And this passage is like the border, the turning point between the first part and the second part of the book. And it covers all those questions uh, together, which is why it's a good passage to be looking at these questions through. Just before this, Mark has recorded an incident that has happened in a place called Bethsaida. And there in Bethsaida, Jesus healed a blind man. But very unusually, he had done it in two stages. He had opened his eyes to see, but then, even then, his vision was blurred. 
And the second time Jesus laid hands on him, then he could see clearly. We'll see the significance of that in just a few minutes. Now Bethsaida was already up north of the country, and our passage today is set in Caesarea Philippi, another 40 kilometers north of Bethsaida. It's way up there. We don't know why Jesus is so far up there, but, but we do know that not far from there was this beautiful Mount Hermon, snow-capped mountain, 3,000 meters above sea level. And in the very next chapter, Jesus, it says, goes up to a high mountain where he is transfigured. Uh, so probably we think he's heading there because that's going to be the Mount of Transfiguration. But here he is in this area of Caesarea Philippi. He's on his way to some of the villages there when he raises the big identity question with his disciples. But the way he does it, he, is, he approaches it very gently. Uh, first, in verse 27, he asks what people, what other people say about him. He says, who do people say that I am? Now, when Jesus asks who do people say that I am, you might think that he's doing it a bit like Googling yourself. Right? Have you ever, ever Googled yourself? And see, see what's there? If you're famous, you get to find out about all kinds of things that people are saying about you. And if you're not so famous, then you get to find out all kinds of things that people are saying about someone else who's got the same name as you. But Jesus obviously not Google himself, but he does ask his disciples what, what people think of him. Not because he's got a narcissistic streak or anything like that, but to help them and to help us grapple with this question of his identity. And it turns out that there were all kinds of answers that were going around. Some, verse 28, say John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who called Israel to repentance before he came, great contemporary prophetic figure who had been killed by King Herod. So some people thought that Jesus was John the Baptist. King Herod thought that, and that was his guilty conscience talking, wasn't it? Others, uh, verse 28 again, Elijah. Elijah, one of the great prophets of the Old Testament, called Israel back to God when, when, when she had turned to idols. And God had promised that one day Elijah was going to come and before God came himself in judgment. So some people were thinking, well, this must be Elijah. And others, verse 28, again says, one of the prophets. Because, well, Jesus does fit the prophetic mold, doesn't he? He speaks the word of God. That's what the prophets do. So maybe he's, he, he's one of the prophets. Notice that all these things were, were positive views of Jesus. John the Baptist, Elijah, the prophets, oh, they were great people. They all came from God. Unlike their religious leaders who rejected Jesus, these general public had a positive view of Jesus. Positive, but inadequate. And friends, there are all kinds of people today who have got positive, but inadequate views of Jesus. Not many people today want to say nasty things about him. Oh, there are people who do that, but most people don't want to say nasty things about Jesus. It's actually more politically correct to domesticate him rather than to slander him. Many of our Muslims say, a Muslim friends say that he is a he's a prophet of God, one of many. Some of our Hindu friends will place him as, as one of their many teachers or even deities. Some of our other friends say he's a great a great moral teacher like Confucius or Buddha. All views that are positive, but but inadequate. It's like if someone asks me about Victor, we'll pick on Victor because he's going away. Right? Someone asks me about Victor and asks me who, you know, who he is, and I say, oh, Victor's a mammal. Right? Right? Well, that's true, isn't it? Right? 
It's true at one level, but, but Victor's a lot more than just a mammal. He's a special kind of mammal. He's a, he's a human being. And there are so many things we can say about Victor and about his life that is far more important than saying that he's a mammal, even though it's true that Victor is a mammal. Calling Jesus a prophet or a teacher from God is true, but it's inadequate. In fact, it's impossible that Jesus was only a prophet or a teacher because he claimed to be so much more. If he was just a prophet and he made the claims that he did, he was a false prophet. If he was just a teacher and he made the claims that he did, he was a false teacher. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but don't accept his claim to be God. This is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. So the crowds have got a, a positive but inadequate view of Jesus. And so now Jesus is talking now to his disciples, the ones who have been with him, they know him better than anyone else, and he, he zooms in on them. Just now he asked them for the public opinion. That's, actually, it's relatively easy to report what other people think. But Jesus is not going to just let them report. He wants them to answer for themselves. And so he asked them in verse, 21, verse 29, But who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I wonder if there's anyone here who could answer the first question, but would have trouble with the second one. You can tell us what the Muslims think of Jesus. You can tell us what the Jews think of Jesus. You can tell us what the atheists think of Jesus. You might even be able to tell us what the Christians think of Jesus. But in the end, it doesn't matter what other people think of Jesus. One thing you need to discover for yourself is, who do you say Jesus is? You need to know Jesus for yourself. And Jesus will ask you today, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Well, Peter, one of the disciples, answers the question. By the grace of God, through, through the revelation of the Father, Peter puts many things together. He remembers the, the teachings of Jesus about the kingdom. He remembers the miraculous healings, the authority in teaching, the feedings in the desert, the raising of the dead girl, the walking on water, all showing us something. He's not just a prophet. He's far, far greater. And that, that, this identity of Jesus grasped briefly by the disciples on different occasions, but had never been, been fully and definitively confessed by them. And now, like the blind man in the passage earlier, Peter's eyes are open. And he says, he says in verse 29, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now that is a great leap forward in the disciples' understanding of Jesus. There's still more to understand. They haven't talked about his divinity. They're going to get to that later. They will be there. But here is our big quantum jump. You are the Christ, Peter says. 
The title Christ means anointed one or king. Right? The Greek word corresponds, the Greek word Christ corresponds to the Jewish word Messiah. And so he, Peter's saying that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the king. He is the one whom God has been promising. He is the one who will rule his people, Israel, but not just Israel, he will rule the world. Uh, God had promised his, his ancestor David that, that his heirs will be on the throne of Israel forever. Uh, Jesus was the son of David, the one to whom those, those promises were pointing to. He, he's not just a prophet, he's the, he's the ruler of the world. Now, what would you do if you knew that you were the Christ and finally someone else had realized it as well? I'll tell you what I would do. I would start a public campaign, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? Huh? You get P P Peter's already on board. Okay, so now we've got to, we've got to move public because you know, if you're the pub, if you're the promised king, you know it. Now other people know it. At least a few people. Then, then it's time to time to move out, so you can fulfill your kingly destiny and, and rule as king and, and bring blessing to the world. But look what Jesus does in verse thirty. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. What's going on here? Why the secrecy? Why not tell? Well, the answer is found as we consider what his plan of action was. As we consider what he came to do. How is he going to become king? You see, my idea of having a public campaign is because I would have thought that I could become king through popular support. That's a normal way people become king, isn't it? But Jesus' plan of how he would become king was nothing like that. For his plan of action was not something that he made up for himself. Everything Jesus did had to be in the will of the Father. And so his program came from the Old Testament. And it was a very surprising one. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. He must suffer, must be suffer, be rejected, die and rise again. He might have talked about this in parabolic kind of terms before, but now he's saying it plainly. This is God to happen. You see, for Jesus to be king didn't mean he's going to walk in Jerusalem and everyone would say, oh Jesus, fantastic that you're here. We've been waiting for you to come. Please take over power from us. <laughs> from a human point of view, too many vested interests for that, isn't it? But from God's point of view, that just simply wasn't his plan. God had already revealed his plan in the Old Testament. When his ancestor David was anointed as king, he had to suffer first under Saul before he could assume the kingship. And the same thing would happen to the true king, that the Christ of which David was pointing. The Christ must suffer first before entering into his kingdom. That was God's plan. And the reason that he had to suffer first, also you go back to the Old Testament and you, and you see this figure called the servant of the Lord that's found in the book of Isaiah. This servant is the one who restores Israel 
and rules Israel, not only rules Israel, but reigns with justice over all the nations, and yet this servant suffers and dies for the sins of many. He bears their sins, he takes their guilt, he takes their punishment, and then, and only then, is he exalted and made to rule the world. That's the servant in Isaiah. For Jesus to be king, he's got to be that servant. And so he must suffer at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the, the, the Jewish leadership. He must be killed because he's the servant king. And on the third day he must be raised to life. Because the true king, Psalm 16 says, his body will not see decay. And so he will be shown to be that true king who will save his people. Now all this is a bit too much for Peter. Like Jesus had opened the eyes of that blind man in the passage, God had opened Peter's eyes to Jesus, but he still didn't see clearly. His vision was like the man still blurred. Knew who Jesus was, but couldn't see what he came to do. He would need another miracle for that. And so Peter couldn't accept the fact that that Jesus had to die. All this suffering and dying stuff, surely that's, surely that's not necessary. Surely there must be a better way. Of course, he doesn't want to contradict Jesus' lie in front of everyone else. right? He's, he's a good disciple. So he'll do it privately. He'll have a quiet word for, for, for Jesus' own good. And so in verse 32, Peter takes him aside and, and begins to rebuke him. Peter's speaking, he's trying to persuade Jesus not to follow that painful road. And as Peter is speaking, it says that Jesus, verse 33, turned and saw his disciples. And when he turns and he looks at his disciples, he knows that to be their king, he first would need to be their savior. Because they, like us, are sinful people. They, like us, need to be rescued. They, like us, need, to take, need someone to take away their sins or they could never be part of God's kingdom. On the other hand, Peter wants Jesus to become king without going to the cross. He wants him to have the glory without going through the pain. He, he wants him to be, have, be exalted without first being humiliated. He wants him to avoid the way of the cross. And surely, surely this would have been attractive. Wouldn't it be good to fulfill the destiny that God has planned for you without going through the hardship? Wouldn't it have been good for Jesus to save his life? Wouldn't it have been good to be able to bring in the kingdom that God had promised? The, the easy way? But how could Jesus do that? How could he claim the kingship with, which is his by right without going through suffering? How could he be ruler without first being savior? How could he have a people, a church which are his very own without purchasing us, purchasing us with his own blood? How could he be a king over people who have not been redeemed from sin? How could he be king without being the servant? It's only one way, and that would be to turn aside from the path of obedience that God the Father had set before him.
to build his own kingdom, a kingdom wherein his subjects remain in sin, a kingdom that is not the kingdom of God, which ultimately comes under the evil one. And so in the words of Peter, Jesus recognizes another voice, a diabolic voice, seeking to draw him away from the path that the Father has set before him. And so Jesus rebukes Peter in the strongest possible terms in verse 33, Get behind me, Satan! It's not that Peter's literally Satan, but he's used by Satan to tempt Jesus. And, and this is part of his good intentions. Notice, this is, a, this is a terrible temptation. It comes to Jesus through, through, through someone he loves and, and cares for. You know, if one of the Pharisees or teachers of the law kind of say these kind of things, you know, don't think there's much to talk about, is there? Of course they've got it wrong, but here's someone who, who genuinely loved Jesus. Here is someone who has just confessed him as the Christ, who has just been the first one to say, yes, I recognize who this is. And yet he is the one who is trying to lead him away from his mission to die for our sins and rise again. And friends, that's a great warning for us, isn't it? Be careful not to lead someone away from putting obedience to God first even out of genuine but misguided care for them? mustn't do that. And let's be careful of being led astray ourselves as well. Sometimes the temptation to disregard God's plans, to disregard obedience to God's word and to do things our own way, it comes not from people who hate us, but from people who love us. Sometimes the temptation to put ourselves first instead of putting God's first comes from people who genuinely care for us and think they're doing us a favor. Sometimes it's not our enemies who lead us away from God, but, but our friends. In fact, sometimes the people who lead us astray can be even more like Peter in the sense that they love Jesus. Peter loved Jesus. Peter confessed that he was the Christ, and sometimes people who lead us astray confess that he's the Christ. Just, just that Peter's idea of king is not Jesus' idea of king. And sometimes these people, the idea of king is different as well. They marginalize the cross, they push it to the periphery, so they only speak of triumph. And as they marginalize the cross of Christ, they ignore the call to costly obedience on our part as well. The gospel message of the Christ who died for our sins and rose again is re replaced with a gospel of health and wealth and happiness and prosperity and everything. They know Jesus the Christ. They genuinely want the best for him and his kingdom. They speak with the best of intentions, but if they lead us away from the cross, then they lead us astray. Peter doesn't want to hurt Jesus. They simply got the wrong way of thinking. And Jesus says to him in verse 33, You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. 
He's not setting his mind on the things of God. He's not thinking God's way. He's thinking the human way. We human beings think that greatness is ease. We think that the absence of pain is the mark of success. We think that things going smoothly is a sign of God's blessing. We don't see that the path to victory is often brokenness and shame. We don't think that a crucified Messiah could be the saviour of the world. We would never have imagined that the death of God's Son would be the means by which he enters into his kingdom. Man's way is to fight for the kingdom. God's way is to be obedient to the Father. And friends, we cannot achieve God's purposes man's way. We have to do it God's way. God meant for his king to go to the cross. He had to die for your sins and mine. He had to take our guilt and punishment for us. Because otherwise we would never have been able to be saved from God's wrath against our sin. God had decided that his king would defeat the devil and save the world at the cross. So what must Jesus do? He must go to Jerusalem. He must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. That was his mission. That's what he came to do. Now, if that is what Jesus did, and that's what he did for us, the next question that arises is, what does he expect from us? What does he want from us? And Jesus answered that question as he speaks, not just to the disciples, but, but also to the crowds. There's a general statement, verse 34. He called the crowd to him with his disciples and said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, remember when Jesus said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan? He wasn't just saying, go away, I don't want to see your face. All right? He wasn't saying, talk to the hand. Huh? Huh? That's Jake. Hi, Jake. <laughs> the word he uses for behind is the same word translated after here in verse 34. In other words, he's saying to Peter, get behind me. That is, come after me. Same thing is here. I said the direction... You fall in line. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to come after me, then Jesus says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Get in line, come after me. Now, how do you do that? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Now, what does it mean to deny yourself? Sometimes people try to finish the sentence for Jesus. So, deny yourself means deny yourself chocolate, right? Or deny yourself meat or fun or whatever it is. But Jesus says, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself. Full stop. 
Later on in Mark's Gospel, you'll see Peter denying Christ. He'll say, what does he say? I don't know him. I'm not with him. Denying Christ means disowning him. Denying yourself means disowning yourself. It means rejecting yourself. But reject yourself in what way? There are so many ways we can reject ourselves, and many of them are not very healthy. We can reject ourselves from the physical angle, hating our bodies, and loathing the way God made us. That's not what Jesus is talking about. We can reject ourselves psychologically, keep doing damage to ourselves, through our actions and our habits. That's, that's not what Jesus is talking about. What sense do we deny ourselves or reject ourselves? Well, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, done before the time of Jesus, had the same word deny in that Isaiah 31, verse 6 and 7. Verse 7, actually. In that passage, Isaiah is pleading with the people of Israel to, to return to God. He says, Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. And he tells us what it's like if it's, when, when that happens. He says, For in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. That cast away word is that same word for deny or to... to, to um, Reject. Right? For Israel to return to God, they will reject, they will deny their idols of gold and silver. And friends, for us to deny ourselves means to reject or to cast away ourselves as, as our own God. Because God is God, Jesus is Lord. We are not. Everything revolves around Him, not, not us. For Peter, that would mean that he would follow Jesus' plan, which was to follow the Father's plan rather than Peter's plan. And the same thing applies to us. We are under him, to love him, to follow him, to obey him. We are to listen to what he says. And first and foremost in that same area as Peter had to. We too must subjugate our ideas about what God should do and what God's king should be like to God's ideas. God's plan was that the Christ should suffer and die and third day be raised. And, and that very plan, now that it has been completed, the message of that very plan must be at the very heart of how we relate to God. We relate to him as people who are saved by that plan and now the message of the plan. Death of Jesus, not our own merits. And furthermore, that gospel word of the death and resurrection of Jesus as God's king that, that Peter so far found so difficult, that is, that is to be the basis of everything that we do in every area of life. Because the word of God sets the paradigm for everything with, a, with that gospel at the very heart of it. From how we approach our work to how we treat our spouse, from how we spend our money to how we use our sexuality, from how we treat our family to how we drive on the road. We don't make up the rules anymore. We don't set the principles. We don't determine the priorities. We're no longer king of our own lives. Our life is no longer our own. We have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. We are under Jesus. We are accountable to him. He is our king who died for us. Jesus says to his disciples, if you want to follow me, you want to come after me, deny yourself. You're no longer the boss. I am. The next thing the potential disciple has to do is what? Take up his cross, isn't it? Jesus said this before he was crucified, so it wouldn't have the same kind of connotations for his disciples as it has for us. But the cross was the very common method of execution in those days. Take up your cross means get ready for execution. 
Criminals who are about to die will carry their cross to the place where they're going to be crucified. And Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? Take up your cross and follow me. And really, that was quite literal, wasn't it? Soon, Jesus himself would be nailed to a cross and killed. Peter tried to stop him. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Instead, you take up your cross and follow me. Come with me. I'm going to die. You follow me. You prepared to die for Jesus? Are you willing to give your life for him and his cause? Jesus say, you come after me, you take up your cross. Get ready to die. So what does he expect from us? What does he want from us? He wants our life. He wants to rule our lives and he wants us to be prepared to die for him. Follow Jesus on the assumption that you will die as a result. That is his expectation. Now that's a high price, isn't it? That Jesus demands. And so we come to the last question. Is following him worth the cost? Is it worth it? Is it worth my life? Well, the answer is yes, because paradoxically, following Jesus to death is the way to life. Jesus died, and he rose from the dead and entered into glory. And if we follow him, then, then so will we. Jesus says in verse 35, For whoever will save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's, will save it. If we refuse to follow Jesus because we love our own life so much, they will end up as losers. We'll still die, maybe a few years later, but we still die. And we face eternity without him. And a Christless eternity means an eternity without, well, eternity under God's wrath, isn't it? Because our sin is still on our own shoulder. That's a, that's a really foolish option to take. Very short-term thinking. But if we trust in Jesus and his gospel, even if it means death today, then, then we have life forever. Even if they take our life, they cannot take us out of the kingdom. The kingdom in which we enjoy life as it was meant to be as God's people and God's place under God's blessing and rule and the new creation forever. If you want to save your life by not following Jesus, you lose it. You lose your life for Jesus and the gospel, you get it. Many of you know the story of Jim Elliot, the missionary to Ecuador. At the age of 28, 1956, he and four friends went to preach the gospel to Akua Indians, known to be cruel to outsiders there, and well, they were all killed. And then his wife Elizabeth went back and witnessed about Jesus to the very people who martyred her husband and, and then many people became Christians. Jim Elliot's motto is something that would be good for us to remember. His motto was this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You can't keep your life you can lose eternity. If you 
die for Jesus, you get eternal life. If you live for yourself, you eventually die. Do your cost-benefit analysis. You're better off following Jesus. Jesus says in verse 36 to 37, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life or his soul? Same word. What can a man give in return for his life? If money is your idol, what is the point of being the richest person in the whole world if at the end of it you die and go to hell? What's the point? You can have a golden coffin. That's nice. If power is what keeps you from following Jesus, well, what's the point of being the most powerful person in all the world if at the end of it you die and go to hell? What's the point? If your career is your God, then what's the point of being the best banker, best lawyer, best engineer, best whatever it is, is if at the end of the day you, you die and go to hell? What's, what's the point? What is, whatever it is that's keeping you from following Jesus, it's, it's not worth it. One day Jesus will come back and judge the world and he says in verse 38, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, those, that is those, those gospel words about the fact that he has to die and for our sins and be raised, ashamed of me and my words, he says, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Do not let anything or anyone stop you from coming to Christ. Do not be ashamed of the cross, as we sang earlier. Follow Jesus on the assumption that it will cost you your life. Jesus wanted his disciples to follow him on the assumption that they would die as a result. Yet at the same time, not all of them were, were going to. At least not yet. He says in 9 verse 1, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. When will the kingdom of God come with power? Well, the kingdom of God came in power with the death and resurrection of Jesus, didn't it? The disciples got a glimpse, a, a foretaste of it in the transfiguration, the very next passage, but, but the real coming of the kingdom came with the cross. Jesus was indeed rejected and killed, as he said, and nailed to the cross. And as he died on the cross, he was, oh, think about it. There he is, crowned with a crown of thorns. And there he is with a sign above his head, King of the Jews. This is the most paradoxical coronation that's ever happened. But he's becoming the king. He gives his life for our souls. The Son of Man becomes our King by, by dying in our place. And then he's, he's raised from the dead as he said he would be. The scriptures would be fulfilled and God would powerfully declare him to be King by raising him up. And so the Kingdom of God will come in power and there would be people among those of Jesus' disciples who would not taste death until this happened. Now, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him to death. But when you think about it, when you think about it really carefully, then you realize that actually none of them did. None of them made it to the end, not, not even Peter. Jesus went to Jerusalem to be crucified and 
The only one to die to bring in the kingdom was, was Jesus himself. He alone did what he called his disciples to do. He alone was, was worthy to go to the cross. It was only after his resurrection and with the giving of the Holy Spirit that the disciples were able to do what Jesus called them to. It was on the other side of the cross that they, they truly followed Jesus. And many of them did die for him. And now in that same position, on the other side of the cross, Jesus calls us as well. And he calls us to follow him on the assumption that we will die as a result. And he gives us his spirit to enable us to do that. And brothers and sisters, if Jesus died for us, shouldn't we be willing to die for him? Some of us might end up doing so. Are you willing to follow Jesus with the assumption that if you do, this will cost you your life? Those are the terms that he offers. But I tell you, Jesus is worth following. And eternal life is worth dying for. And listen to this. If you are willing to die for Jesus, if you are willing to follow him on his terms, then consider yourself dead already. You're dead. Your life is over. Of course you're still breathing. But now your life is, is not yours. It is his. You live now to serve him, to please him, to bring his glory, to fulfill his plan, whatever that means. Consider yourself dead. And then ask Jesus what he wants you to do with the rest of your life. If you're willing to die for Jesus, then be willing to live for him. So who is Jesus? He is God's king. What is his mission? He came to die for us on the cross and rise again to bring in the kingdom. What does he want for us? He expects us to follow him on the assumption that we will die as a result. Is it worth it? Yes, it is. Jesus offers us eternal life and we can trust him with our lives because he died for us and rose again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have indeed given your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to take away our sins, and that you have raised him from the dead as Lord and King. And his kingdom has come in. And we are part of his kingdom now. We thank you so much for that. We thank you that he was willing to go all the way to the cross in spite of the pain and the shame that he was willing to bear our sins and not take the easy way out 
We thank you that he was willing to listen to your plan laid forth in the Old Testament and to be obedient to you. And we thank you that as a result we can now be forgiven freely. And we thank you for the call that he has made to us, the call to follow him on his terms. We pray that by your Spirit you will grant us the grace and the strength to be faithful to that call. We know that we ourselves fail in so many ways, but we look to his faithfulness and his righteousness and not our own. And yet at the same time, we know that his demand upon us is, is that we be willing to die for him, to live for him. Grant us, Lord, that we might count ourselves dead to ourselves, that we might live to serve and please him. And Father, we pray for anyone here today who's considering Christ, who's, who's looking at the possibility of following him as, as Lord. We pray that your spirit will be working in their hearts, granting them to see so clearly who Jesus is, why he came, and granting them the, the heart to follow him even on the assumption that this will cause the loss of their own life, that they might gain life eternal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.